everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Today's show is jam-packed with three really excellent guests. So incredibly excited to have all these guests on. We're going to be starting by talking with the wonderful retired Colonel anti-war activist and Wright. Then we're going to be talking to journalist Talia Jane, who was one of the people who helped break the Aaron Bushnell story. And then we're going to be talking to historian Asal Rod, who does a lot of great analysis of media bias. So first things first, though, of course, please do like this stream. It's a free way to support this show. If you haven't already, please subscribe. We've passed 190,000 subscribers, and that's great. So make sure you subscribe. Both of those are great free ways to support the show. Also, if you can become Patreon supporters, that makes this show happen. We literally couldn't have the show without you. And you can do that patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And if you join for $5 a month, you get all sorts of great extra content. If you can't swing it, but you can do $1 a month, you just get to make this show happen. I think without any further ado, I'm going to start our show and bring on our first guest. I'm so excited to be bringing this person back onto the show. She joined us once before. She's joining us from Hawaii, where she lives. Anne Wright is a 29-year U.S. Army Reserves veteran who retired as a colonel and a former U.S. diplomat who resigned in March 2003 in opposition to the war in Iraq. She served in Nicaragua, Grenada, Somalia, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Sierra Leone, Micronesia, Mongolia. In December 2001, she was on the small team that reopened the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. She's the co-author of the book, Dissent Voices of Conscience. And she recently wrote or republished a piece called Why Would Anyone Kill Oneself in an Attempt to Stop a War? So, Anne, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Katie. It's great to be back with you. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask you, we are in the midst of a genocide against the people of Palestine, the people of Gaza in particular, but really all Palestinians. Also, it's the two-year anniversary of the start of the proxy war in Ukraine. I want to ask you about both of those conflicts proxy wars in some ways. But I wanted to start off by playing some footage of you and your comrades at Code Pink getting arrested back in November. Could you set up what you were interrupting and disrupting? Well, yes. uh, You know, whenever any of the policymakers of our country go before the Congress to testify, that's the one chance we have to be in the same room with them, because we don't get invited to the White House. We don't get invited to to anything really. So we kind of have to bust in on their parties and the congressional hearings are open to the public. And if you get there early enough and get in line early enough, you can get in. Even though the cops, the Capitol Police know exactly who we are. In fact, they, they talk to us by name. Oh, hey, Ann, glad to see you back. <laughs> and Medea. And Medea for sure. Oh my God. And, uh, uh, we sit there until we um, have something to say. And it's the only time that these leaders, this in particular, uh, Tony Blinken and 
Lloyd Austin, Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, were sitting there. And I don't think they had heard voices like this really in person. So it was it was important to stand up and to, uh, in a quick message, tell them what we felt that on behalf of the American public. Let's take a look. We're, we're here in the rotunda of the Russell, Russell Senate office building, and we've just walked in and seen all of these photographs and posters of people that have been Kidnapped, taken hostage, hostage. Lost. 140 people taken hostage. Um, none of us condone the hostage taking nor the the deaths of 1,200 people on October 7th. But uh, what we also need to be having here are the pictures of some of the 15,000 Palestinians who have been killed in Gaza and some of the thousands of prisoners that are in Israeli jails uh, in uh, from the West Bank in East Jerusalem uh, without trial going to a military court. So it's a, you know, it's a poignant reminder. These are a reminder of, of a terrible thing that happened on October 7th, and we need to be reminded of what goes on in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza every single day at the hands of uh, the Israeli government that is killing and more criming people of Palestine. Okay, and here's the actual disruption. Please fire now! Save the children of Gaza! Save the children of Gaza! Please fire now! Where is your pride, America? That was David Barrows. Nice that people feel very passionately, but I ask that we have order in this hearing room and respect our speakers. We will move forward with the hearing uh, and allow the people here and the American people to hear from their witnesses. 3,500 kids dead. Come on, I'm an Army colonel. I'm a former diplomat. I resigned on that war in Iraq that you talked about. That was a terrible thing, and what we're doing right now in supporting... Israel's genocide of Gaza is a terrible thing, too. Thank you, Secretary Blinken. If you can continue, please. Thank you, Chair. Uh, The president's funding request has four key elements. So thank you, Anne, for doing that. And tell us why you were doing that. Well, Tony Blinken was uh, testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and had done nothing other than just say that Israel was acting in self-defense. And at that time, here it was the end of October, and there had already been, an early part of November, there had already been at least 10,000 uh, uh, Palestinians that had been killed in Gaza. Uh, the horrific, horrific bombing of Gaza was like nothing we really have ever seen before, and it just continued now for another two months. So now that we have nearly 30,000 Palestinians killed and 7,000 that, that have never been found under the rubble, it's so important that any time we see any of these uh, politicians uh, and government officials, that we really give them an earful because it, this is U.S. complicity in genocide in Gaza. So it's up to us to make sure that they realize that they are war criminals, just like the Israeli uh, government officials are. Now, you're someone who has been paying attention to Israel for a while, and you actually you are part of a flotilla. Can you talk about that experience, please? Surely. Well, I started in 2009 going to Gaza uh, after the Israeli attack uh, that killed 1,400 people in 27 days. 
that was 2009. In 2010, I was asked to be on the Gaza flotilla where the Marvi Marmara, the big ship from Turkey, uh, where Israeli commandos came onto the ship, murdered 10 people, wounded 50 others. I was not on that ship, but I was on a, a little boat right next to it. All seven of the boats of that flotilla were boarded by Israeli commandos and people beaten up on all of the, the ships. And all of us were taken to Israeli prison and uh, subsequently deported from Israel. I also have been on other flotillas and have been back in Israeli prison several different times on these flotillas. It's a, it's a way that we can bring attention, international attention, to the continuing siege, naval siege, as well as land siege. Uh, that's going on on Gaza. And you've been, uh, you were a colonel, you were also a diplomat. Why does the United States support Israel with no, unconditionally? What does the United States get out of it? Well, it's it's been the policy virtually since the creation of the state of Israel that the U.S. has protected the governments of Israel no matter what acts they commit toward Palestinians or toward other people. And it, you know, I, I, I think it's a holdover from uh, guilt about the, gen- uh, the uh, well, the genocide, the Holocaust from World War II. Um, but we find that there are so many U.S. politicians that are elected to senior levels of the government, like all of the presidents, uh, seem to be very strong supporters of the state of Israel because they get money from APAC, the American Israeli Public Affairs. Council and from very rich uh, Zionists who support the state of Israel no matter what actions it takes against Palestinians. Right. And then, of course, you have the Christian Zionists who are on the other, for, for very different ideological reasons, but who are unconditionally supportive of Israel. Indeed. And, and they are very, very uh, strong supporters. And when we probably get yelled at as much by them as we get yelled out by the Zionists when we're out on the streets uh, trying to challenge the U.S. policies on Israel. And what is America motivated by when it comes to the Ukraine proxy war? Well, it, it seems to be motiv- motivated by, by the opportunity to try to, uh, re- interestingly, try to take down the Russian government. And one would say, well, why in the world do you want to take down the government of a, you know, a huge country like that? And shouldn't you be working diplomatically? It's not like, you know, that you agree with all the policies of every country in the world, but you don't try to take down their governments, except that seems to be a a role the U.S. thinks it should play. If you count up the number of uh, coups that have been assisted by the United States, it's a pretty darn long list. And I think this was, this is, Kind of the, a throwback to the Russians going into Afghanistan back in the late nineteen uh, seventies, where Brzezinski said, "We will, we will really put, we will make Russia pay for that. We will really make them have to ramp up their their military for what they're doing." I think that's exactly what they're trying to do here, and and have done it. I think they've been surprised at the Russian response, and uh, that it continues to be a very strong one. And I think they are surprised that uh, members of the U.S. Congress, not many, but a few, are still saying maybe it's, we've already spent nearly $100 billion in support of the Ukrainian government. Isn't it time that uh, 
the peace talks, negotiations start there to stop the killing, number one. Uh, and number two is this huge expenditure on war, where every country that's contributing to the the war effort, so to speak, the military uh, equipment that's going into Ukraine, they all have social issues that that money could be well spent. And certainly we in the United States have plenty, plenty of social issues we should be addressing rather than funding another proxy war. Right. What's so interesting is, and sick kind of, is that it's obvious that the United States wants to weaken and bleed Russia. It's obvious that Israel and the United States wants to bleed Palestinians. But in the course of bleeding Russians, they're, of course, killing Ukrainians, using Ukrainians as cannon fodder. And Israel, in the course of killing Palestinians, when they could be negotiating to release the hostages, instead of doing that, they're bombing, they're killing their own hostages. So it's not even about, I mean, even their alleged moral commitment is undermined. This isn't about saving the lives of Ukrainians, and it's not about saving the lives of Israeli Jews. Well, indeed. And the the whole issue of countries calling themselves the most moral whatever it is, uh, the, the more they talk about morality, probably the less moral they really are. Israel has always claimed they have the most moral military in the world. Well, look what they're doing to the Palestinians. And certainly, the United States prides itself on being a very moral country until you get into the history of how immoral our our actions to other other countries are and the numbers of people that we have killed in the name of US values. Did you have an aha moment that changed the way you saw the United States or was it more gradual? Well, I I had worked in the US government most of my adult life. I I worked under eight different presidential administrations uh starting with JFK during the Vietnam War. And it, it wasn't like I agreed with all the policies that that these various administrations cooked up. But like most people that stay in the government, you hold your nose to a lot of stuff and you find the policies and, and programs that you feel like you can work with that um, you know that, that you you personally don't feel like you're doing anything to harm other people. When the overall program that the U.S. may be having in certain parts of the world certainly uh, is harming a lot of people. But finally, it was the uh, the decision of the Bush administration to invade and occupy oil-rich Arab Muslim country Iraq that had nothing to do with 9-11. And it was like, for God's sakes, you know, this is just one step too far for me. I'd held my nose to a lot of different things the U.S. had done in those 35 years, but this one, I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. So I was one of three U.S. diplomats that resigned over the U.S. war on Iraq. And we're going to shift gears a little bit right now. It's, of course, very related, but on Sunday, Aaron Bushnell, a 25-year-old active duty U.S. Air Force member, set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. to protest the genocide in Gaza. And we're going to be talking about that more with our um, next guest who covered this story. But I thought that it was really important to put what he did in context. He said he would no longer be complicit in genocide, as we'll get into more with the next guest. The media really tried to whitewash him, uh, whitewash what he did. First, they tried to ignore it, then whitewash it. 
then uh, people tried to pathologize him as mentally ill. And you wrote a really important piece um, that you, you wrote, I think, for the first time in 2018. Why would anyone kill oneself in an attempt to stop a war? But that creates, that sets up the kind of precedent for people doing this. So can you talk about what gave rise to this piece in the first place? Well, I'd been in, in Vietnam on a trip with uh, Veterans for Peace. And in Hanoi, at one of the uh, offices of the Vietnam American Friendship Society, there was a wall of pictures uh, of, of what looked to be like Americans and was like, what are these doing there? And, and our host said, well, these are the Americans that killed themselves to try to stop the, your war on Vietnam. And it was, it was so stunning to me. Uh, uh, Norman Morrison is probably the one that's the most famous. He was a Quaker, and he uh, set himself on fire at the Pentagon. And he had his little baby, Emily, with him and handed her over to someone that was standing by. And, and he set himself on fire, little knowing that four floors up the office of Secretary of Defense McNamara. And later on, McNamara wrote in his memoirs, my family kept kept kind of turning against me against this Vietnam War. Uh, and finally, this what really got to me was this young man who who killed himself right under my window, four floors down. And and then the Vietnamese said, and we have um, we have a song that is sung in our grade schools uh, to uh, with the name of Emily and it was to the daughter of of Norman Morrison who killed himself and this song was a tribute to him that the Vietnamese kids were singing that thank you very much for standing up and and sacrificing your life to try to stop this war on us so when you go through the history of all of the people who actually have uh, taken acts of courage and and particularly uh, ending their own life to try to stop a war? It's it's pretty amazing. So Aaron follows in the steps of of uh, some very courageous people that who over the years have taken their lives. Right, and then you have, of course, you mentioned Alice Hertz, who is also a Quaker, who set herself on fire, and she said she did that to protest the arms race and the president using his high office to wipe out small nations. Norman Morrison, who you just mentioned, who's probably one of the best known. And then you mentioned the monks surrounding a monk who immolated himself in 1963 in Saigon to protest the crackdown on Buddhist monks. Indeed. And, you know, the, the Vietnamese Buddhist uh, scholar Thich Nhat Hanh uh, has a quote about self-immolation, that it's, it's done to call attention to, to the issues. It's not done for self-aggrandizement, as one might think. You know, you'd live in history with that. But it's really to call attention to that social justice issue that is, is burning uh, in people's minds and in their bellies and try to mobilize them to action to get governments to stop uh, these policies. And what do you think of the response that we've seen to Aaron's death? Well, the the big commercial major media, of course, has taken a turn that we would predict, you know, that he is mentally, uh, he had mental problems, he da 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 
but from the activist community and social justice organizations, there have been some beautiful, beautiful tributes uh, to Aaron and recognizing the, uh, the frustration that we all feel about not being able to actually yet um, see any of our efforts actually making a change in what the Biden administration is doing. Uh, so uh, to use what Aaron has uh, done, giving up his life, uh, to call attention, to say, you know, there, there are a variety of ways that things happen, and he has taken his life on it. So the least we can do is get into high gear and really keep putting more and more pressure on the Biden administration to call for a ceasefire, demand a ceasefire from the Israelis, and to not fund any more military equipment, no more money to Israel. And so would you say he was mentally ill, or would you say he was principled in his actions? Well, I'd say he was principled. He certainly was. Uh, to come to the realization, and I'm sure it just was not an overnight decision, he had to make some big decisions on on his life. And I think as things probably come up and we find out more from his family, we find out more from his friends in San Antonio. Um, he was based in San Antonio, so he made a trip to Washington, D.C. Uh, to uh, to do this. And as we find out more about him, we'll, we'll discover how long he had been thinking about this and whether he had actually done some Palestinian solidarity work in, in San Antonio and a little bit more about his background. But he was a very, very principled person. And there was an order that the United States Air Force issued deployment. So, so the, the United States Air Force back in November issued deployment guidelines for officers, including intelligence engagement officers headed to Israel. Uh, can you talk about that, what that meant? Well, indeed, uh, while the U.S. tries to be quiet about all of its uh, work with the, with the Israeli military, we've, we know that there are uh, U.S. military officers who have been sent to Israel. Uh, we've always had a detachment of people that are part of the Iron Dome process, the rockets that are shot up whenever Hamas fires rockets toward Israel. The Patriot Missile Program has people that are in, in Israel. And the targeting, of, uh, uh, the targeting of specific individuals and locations in Gaza apparently has been accelerated through the use of U.S. military officers who have been sent to Israel. So they have blood on their hands. Up, the blood on their hands goes all the way up to their necks on what they're involved in. And one would hope that they will recognize that they are a part of genocide. And if we can get any of these people hauled before a, a criminal court, a war crime court, I mean, it should be U.S. military officers as well as, as U.S. politicians that have been part of this genocide. And of course, a ton of Israeli civilian politicians and military officers all need to go before a court of justice. Well, Anne, thank you so much. Any final words while we still have you? Well, keep up the good work. Everybody hit the streets. Uh, call your Congress people. Whenever you see a politician out on the streets, uh, don't let them get away with just walking away. Let them know that you demand a ceasefire and no more money for Israel. Stop the genocide. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Anne. And come back. We'd love to always love having you on. Thank you so much. Okay, so that was the wonderful Anne Wright. So happy to be talking to her. So grateful for her insights. We're bringing on our next guest, Talia Jane. She's joining us live from a vigil for Aaron, and she's going to tell us where exactly she is, what this vigil is. And she's one of the people who really broke this story. She is on Twitter at Talia T-O-G. She's an independent reporter and video journalist, and she covers social movements and protests, as well as researching far-right propaganda and extremism. And her work has appeared on CBS, ABC, NBC, New York Times, and more. So welcome, Talia. Thanks for having me. Of course. Can you tell us where you are right now? Yeah, I'm uh, currently at Times Square in front of the U.S. Military Recruitment Center here in the heart of Times Square, where roughly 200, maybe 300 people, maybe 250 have gathered to mourn and celebrate the life of Aaron Bushnell, who self-immolated outside the Israeli consulate in D.C. on Sunday. And tell us how you came upon this story and what you discovered in your research. I saw early reporting saying that someone may have tried to set themselves on fire, attempted to set themselves on fire at the consulate. And I posted about that. Then I received a link to a Twitch channel from another reporter who had been emailed that link earlier in the day. And he said, you know, we have the video. And I watched and saw that the person had successfully self-immolated. And it was just the work of reporting that information out as immediately as I could in that time frame. We're going to show the footage of Aaron not self-immolating, but what he said before. I am an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. Palestine. And then he says free Palestine. So we also have Aaron's final social media post where he said, many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is you're doing it right now. And Talia, tell us what you discovered about Aaron. So what I learned from um, his, his friends and uh, people who he had was living in San Antonio and then moved to Ohio. He was estranged from his parents and had contact with one sibling. The family that he really built was based on community. Um, it was based on mutual aid, trying to help other people. He was very, very dedicated to food distros for unhoused people in San Antonio, as well as with uh, Serve the People Akron, which is in Ohio. He was deeply committed to the abolition of homelessness as well as, you know, a myriad of other issues. So uh, he, you said he was committed to the abolition of homelessness? Yeah. Estranged from his parents? From what people have told me is that he was really kind and gentle, very principled, very funny. He loved Lord of the Rings, and he knew everything about Lord of the Rings. He was just living his life. What about the difference between the way his death has been reported on versus the death of a woman back in December in Atlanta, whose name we don't even know. 
Can you contrast that and explain the role of social media? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really what Aaron did was he sent out a link to the Twitch stream to reporters beforehand and he posted on his, his Facebook page and he requested that it be recorded and, and saved. And in the case of the person that self-immolated in December, I think the only thing that's known is that it was in Atlanta, Georgia, and that it was a woman, I think. But we don't know a name. We don't have any sort of, you know, information on if they, if they you know, left a note, if they had family. There's, there's not, we have no idea. And with this, the, I think the key distinction is that the story broke a person that isn't a member of, you know, a news outlet and is not technically mainstream. I'm an independent little reporter and I, I centered it on, you know, what happened and why, which is what I do with everything I report on. And the distinction, I think, was early on, the reporting was, it seems that someone, you know, tried to set themselves on fire and that would have been it. It had this video not gotten into the hands of press before it was taken down by Twitch. And I think being able to see that that one still moment proved to people that the claim was true about the self-immolation. This did happen. And that sort of forced media to deal with it. Like, it went viral, and then they started reaching out. I sent the footage to all sorts of different outlets um, so they could verify it. And, and, you know, I was very upfront, very straightforward about like what it was, when to expect it to get very bad screenshots of the Twitch channel, like everything I could possibly think of to help them verify the authenticity of the, the stream. I did in the hopes that, you know, the media will have the full amount of information possible to report this story. From the reporting that we've seen, it has still kind of continued to soft shoe. There was a lot of, you know, uh, a man set himself on fire, and that's that's kind of it. No motive was known. And he made it clear what his motives were when he said it. And in fact, you responded, this is just an example. So Joshua P. Hill tweeted out, the Washington Post has decided it's time to go full smear campaign, because we're going to get into this more with our next guest, but... Once the, the media tried to ignore it, then they covered it. They tried to leave out the reason. Then they tried to pathologize him. So we have airman who set self on fire, grew up on religious compound, had anarchist past. And uh, as Joshua P. Hill writes, the Washington Post has decided it's time to go full smear campaign. And you had a response to that tweet yourself. I said that, you know, his past, I, was, I said that he was estranged from his family. I misspoke. I meant to say just his parents for clarity. But when you're estranged from, that's not necessarily influencing your, your present day choices. It's a silly comparative, overly simplistic probably, but. That's part of why you're saying he was estranged from his parents was because he wasn't conservative. Yeah. It was like a conservative Christian household. He was estranged from them. You know, he becomes an anarchist. It's like the furthest possible thing you can get from. And they're going to try to smear him for being an anarchist, obviously, because Biden himself talks about arsonists and anarchists. I don't know if you guys remember that. Yeah, if you wanted to, if you wanted to have a really quality hot take on this, the the take would be that you know conservative Christians are producing anarchists. If you're going to fearmonger about anarchism and communism taking over the country. Look to the conservative Christians because they're the ones whose kids are becoming anarchists. Obviously, that's not probably backed up by data, but 
that's kind of the level of engagement that you, you can kind of expect people to have with an article like that. They're not necessarily going to look further than that. They're not going to read past that headline. That's they're going to they're going to pathologize in that way. And we have footage that people are actually surprised. We actually have the footage of CNN actually forced to report on it. Let's take a look at this. We're learning new details today about a deadly protest outside the Israeli embassy in Washington. Authorities identified Aaron Bushnell as the person who, on Sunday, set himself on fire. The 25-year-old was an active-duty member of the U.S. Air Force. CNN's Gabe Cohen joins us now with the details. And, and Gabe, this is something that he did in protest. Yeah, that's correct. And we're learning much more about this 25-year-old active-duty airman, uh, Aaron Bushnell, as you mentioned. He's from San Antonio, Texas, and he live-streamed his actions on Sunday in broad daylight on the streets of D.C. outside the Israeli embassy. We're not going to show that video. It is extremely graphic and disturbing. I have watched the video. I can tell you at the beginning, at the start of it, you can see Bushnell walking up to the embassy on the street in his military fatigues. Uh, he's speaking calmly to the camera. I want to read a portion of what he says. He said, uh, quote, I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest. But compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it is not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. He then goes on to pour some sort of accelerant, it looks like, on his head out of a water bottle he was carrying. And then he lights himself on fire, Boris. And as the flames engulf him, you can hear him yelling, free Palestine, free Palestine, again and again, until finally he collapses. And that is when officers, you can see them race in, one of them with a fire extinguisher in their hands, trying to put out the flames. But it takes time and as we have learned, uh, Bushnell died in the hospital at some point later on. Uh, and, and look, it really speaks to the tensions that are continuing to escalate around the war in Gaza, not just across the world, but here in the United States. We saw a similar incident in December when someone self-immolated, uh, lit themselves on fire outside of the Israeli consulate in Atlanta. But this feels different. This is an active duty member of the military burning himself to death on the streets of the nation's capital. Uh, Gabe Cohen, thanks so much for the So it, they actually said it, they actually read his quotes aloud, which I think surprised a lot of people. I think that they couldn't totally bury it because the role of social media. Yeah. Like you can tell that he watched the unblurred version. It's very telling of what happened is that people who are watching it are like, something's got to get. You can see him reliving that moment. And I think the fact that he like read out loud what it was about is almost incidental to how clearly he's being affected by it. And this is, you know, this is a, a reporter, uh, an outlet that has not been, you know, rah, rah for Palestine. And this is the reaction that he is having to it. And, and there what people are pointing out in the comments that there was someone who pulled a Pulled out a gun? Yeah. Can you tell us about that? I believe the the two people that responded at first, there was one guy with a white shirt and then another guy that was on an all black. And they were identified as, I believe, like a secret service for the Israeli embassy. The guy with the gun shows up at the same time as the guy with the fire extinguisher does. And he begins pointing his gun at Aaron after he's already collapsed on the ground. 
after hearing them off screen screaming at him, get on the ground, get on the ground. So I don't know if he was pointing his gun prior to being on screen, but he was yelling at him to get on the ground. And his response was to point the gun at Aaron while the other guy, his response is to, you know, spray a fire extinguisher all over him. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your reporting and thank you for addressing us from these difficult circumstances. And again, thank you for helping get this story out. Thank you. That was Talia Jane. Thank you to Talia for that reporting. Um, yeah, that person who pulled the gun, I think may have worked for Capitol Police, not the Israeli embassy, but I'm not sure. So I'm not, don't quote me on that, but someone who did security did indeed pull out a gun at someone who was on fire, which is insane. We are going to bring on our next guest. Very excited to bring on Asal Rod, who is an historian. Uh, she is a doctor, a scholar of Middle East history. She works on research and writing related to U.S. foreign policy issues, the Middle East, and contemporary Iran. Her writing can be seen in Newsweek, The National Interest, The Independent, Foreign Policy, and more. She's appeared as a commentator on BBC World, Al Jazeera, CNN, NPR. She completed a PhD in history from the University of California, Irvine, in 2018 as the author of The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. And she has an amazing Twitter that everyone should follow because she does great work documenting media bias. So welcome, Asal. Thank you. Thank you, Katie, for having me. Of course. So we're going to talk to you about media bias in general, but I want to start off because you were so good at documenting the media's distortion or burying of Aaron Bushnell's motives. Let's start off by taking a look at a tweet that you did that went viral showing the Aaron Bushnell coverage. So here's a tweet that you did and you showed the various legacy media's coverage of it. Here it is. Why did he do it? Four major news outlets have almost the exact same headline for the self-immolation of 25-year-old Aaron Bushnell. Not one of them mentions the word Gaza or genocide, the reason for Aaron's protest or the world Palestine. And here we have the New York Times. A man sets himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, the police said. Reuters, U.S. airman sets himself on fire outside Israeli embassy in Washington. CNN, U.S. airman sets himself on fire outside Israeli embassy in Washington. And the Washington Post, active duty airman sets himself on fire outside D.C.'s Israeli embassy. Uh, I believe there were some updates later on in the day, barely. But tell us what struck you about this. If this was, you know, and, and I know we're going to talk about it more, but if this was one incident in which this particular situation, we're talking about what's going, Israel's war on Gaza right now, was framed in this manner, then it might not, you know, strike the same chord. But given the consistency with which uh, not only our political discourse, but the media has framed this issue, framed specifically what's going on in Gaza right now, um, it fits into that, right? It fits into sort of trying to whitewash uh, any any affiliation with criminal activity or atrocities being carried out by Israel, um, it whitewashes the identity of Palestinians. We see this often, right? Palestine and Palestinian is very rarely used in any of these headlines. Um, and in this particular case, it takes the actions, the extreme actions of, of all people, a U.S. service member, and basically reduces it to just he set himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy. I, 
don't know if the intention was people would just know, they would connect the dots. Well, it was a, probably a protest and it was in front of uh, the Israeli embassy. Many, as you saw in the in the headlines, they don't even use the word protest, right? So oftentimes you don't even know. It's just he set himself, a man sets himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy. And so it doesn't really tell you what's going on. And I know that there is uh, some people that would make remarks in, in criticism saying, well, if you read the entirety of, of the article, uh, it'll, it'll mention things like that. First of all, the articles didn't initially mention those things. Um, those were updated. And as we know from the case of, I believe it was a woman in Atlanta who self-immolated in December, if there was no social media, if there was no pressure, and if Aaron himself did not have the wherewithal to send to live stream and, and make sure that journalists were getting this video and this message, then we likely wouldn't know, just like we don't know what happened in December. Um, I'm someone who has been following this issue for not just for the last four and a half months, but for, for my entire adult life, but closely in the last several months. And I didn't know about that case in Atlanta. And I was sort and no one I know knew about that case. And I read the news every day. I'm seeing what's going on. We knew about it because I remember an insane response from the Israeli consulate that like made it seem like this person was full of hatred of Jews. But anyway, for the most part, very few people knew about it. Exactly. It is certainly, I mean, this story now, Aaron Bushnell's story is, is widely distributed, has gone viral, and it is very, very widely known when you juxtapose it with the case in Atlanta where you don't even know this individual's name. Um, it's, you, you can see how wide that gap is. And so you see that in the way these headlines are framed. This is how people understand information. And before we get into the to the broader um, examples, what I want to sort of bring up right at the beginning so that people can understand why this is important, why the headline itself is important, why the language, the word selection, all carefully curated is important is because it it shapes the way that people think about not just this particular conflict, but just our, our political outlooks. And so I thought an interesting example that's not related, but related to Israel at least, is in 2021, the Brookings Institute had a poll on various things actually having to do with the Israeli-Palestinian issue, but also there was a question in it about Iran's nuclear program. And what the poll found was that more Americans believed falsely that Iran has nuclear weapons than believed correctly that Israel has nuclear weapons. Iran does not have nuclear weapons. Israel does have nuclear weapons. These are facts. So how do you have a public that switches those two facts. It's because of the information that they're getting. We can't expect, you know, the average American and the American public to be following every issue, especially those of foreign policy with such detail. So how do they get their information? They get it from political and media discourse. And how do you end up with a populace that has the facts all wrong? It's because of the language that's being used. And that's why I say it is intentional. The framing is always intentional. When, uh, Israel is carrying out airstrikes that kill Palestinian civilians. All of those words are missing from the headline. Israel is missing. Palestinian is missing. Uh, killed is missing. So it whitewashes the crimes of Israel while completely erasing the identity of Palestinians. And that's what you see in these headlines when it comes to Aaron Bushnell, because they're ignoring the reason. They're ignoring what should be the center of the story is why this person was willing to sacrifice his own life for a cause. And instead they've centered him personally. Uh, and the fact that, you know, it, it's trying to pathologize him, trying to say there's something wrong with him, trying to say, 
um, trying to basically avoid talking about the issue for which he protested and focusing on him instead. And you wouldn't see that kind of uh, framing if it was someone who would use this kind of extreme form of protest against an adversarial state to the United States, right? If it was a Russian, uh, a, a member of the Russian military that did something like that, the way that it would be conveyed in the media would be wildly different. And that has been the case throughout this conflict and that continues to be the case. And this is just another example of that. Yeah, and you've been documenting a lot of these cases, but something else, and then we're going to get into more of the interesting headlines that you've documented. And by the way, because I know people in the chat are answering, but according to Newsweek, the person who pulled out the gun, according to Newsweek, it is now understood that the person pointing the gun was U.S. Secret Service uniformed division personnel assisting the safety of two other officers who were extinguishing the fire and rendering aid to Bushnell. But back to the discussion of the media's representation of this, let's take a look at how Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC presented this. We have an update now on a truly tragic incident in Washington, D.C. Yesterday, 25-year-old Aaron Bushnell of San Antonio, Texas, the active-duty airman in the U.S. Air Force who set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in an apparent protest against the Israel-Hamas war has died. That identification made by Metropolitan Police here. Bushnell filmed his own self-immolation on his cell phone, yelling, free Palestine, before collapsing to the ground outside the embassy. He was rushed to the hospital for treatment, but later succumbed to his injuries. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the suicide aid and crisis lifeline. You can also call one 800 what are your thoughts on that? Well, so every, again, when I say curated, everything is, is selected for a reason. If you notice in the background, there's an Israeli flag, right? There's no Palestinian flag because heaven forbid we actually represent the other part of what's going on. The fact that suicide was centered, and let me, let me start by saying this. My position politically has always been anti-war and anti-violence. And I say this over and over again. And and that includes the violence that somebody might commit against themselves. So I would never encourage anybody or glorify something that I would not do myself. And I would not do that myself. At the same time, to reduce what is an act of protest as an act of suicide is not an accurate depiction of what happened. This was not someone that was, he was in distress. He was certainly in distress. But the reason for his distress was political, which he articulated. He said exactly the reason why he was doing what he was doing. He not only did he do it, he planned it so carefully, intentionally to make sure that that message was received. And overwhelmingly, that is what people got from this action. But again, the mainstream media tries to sort of spin this as a, this is a personal situation, a personal crisis, rather than it being a political problem. And you see the same kind of parallels in the way we deal with something like uh, terrorism versus a mass shooter right? Mass shooters are lone wolves. It's always the individual. It's the individual psychology. It's not a society that's problematic. It's that individual. And in the case of, you know, as soon as you make that person Muslim, the, the narrative is completely different. It's a societal issue. It's a cultural issue, right? And so this is the same way that this incident is being portrayed as well. This is a political issue. Aaron made that clear. And it is a, it dishonors his memory. To, to try and frame it in any other fashion. Uh, if you 
want to talk about what Aaron did, then you center what he talked about, which is what is happening in Gaza, the issue of Palestine, and U.S., and this is very important, this is a U.S. airman wearing his military uniform, saying that he is tired of being complicit, and he's talking about his own country's complicity. That's the story. The story is U.S. complicity. And, you know, people talk about things. uh, One of the stories that was framed about him was about him being an anarchist. The military, first of all, the military in the United States is voluntary. It's not conscription, right? It's not a mandatory military service. The most fundamental state institution is the military. So the idea that a man that's an active duty service member is now trying to be portrayed as an anarchist is, again, so misleading and trying to strip away what the central point of his action was. And that was speaking out for what is happening in Gaza and U.S. complicity and the Biden administration's complicity in what is happening in it. That's the story. That's what we should be talking about. That honors his memory, not suicide hotlines. There's a lot of um, concern trolling, I would say, and hand-wringing. It's so disingenuous. And a lot of people who just don't want the world to see what the toll of this genocide is here are pretending that they care about mental health. You know, it reminds me of when when there's a gun uh, shooting, when there's a shooting, and conservatives who never care about mental health or any social services or programs at all, all of a sudden become big advocates for funding mental health resources. These people don't even believe in a welfare state. And all of a sudden they talk about mental health. And so uh, you see uh, uh, Andrea Mitchell, who just said that, then there's a slate writer who tweeted this out. And and it's, it's often, you'll see what goes hand in hand is concern with not valorizing this and also a clear political agenda. So here is what um, Mark Joseph Stern said um, about the the way we talk about Aaron Bushnell. I strongly oppose valorizing any form of suicide as a noble, principled, or legitimate form of political protest. People suffering mental illness deserve empathy and respect, but it is wildly irresponsible to praise them for using a political justification to take their own life. Okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, But also interesting is something that that same person had tweeted out. And here it is. Here's the same person. Israel is trying to save civilian lives in Gaza. Hamas is trying to sacrifice them. So, you know, you scratch the surface and you kind of becomes clear why people are presenting this as mental illness. I saw someone else on Twitter say, it's so unfortunate it's because he was confused and thought this was genocide and not a war that he killed himself. Like literally pretending that he cared about this guy who he saw as a dupe victim of crazy people who are saying this is genocide and not war. And so it's because you, you pointed that out, I thought this is, this is important to point out too. Notice that it is often the same people who have not, not only are they now telling us, you know what, ignore what he actually said. It doesn't matter what Aaron said. It matters what I'm saying, right? These are the same people who are also telling you, it doesn't matter what Netanyahu says. It doesn't matter what Ben Gavir says. It doesn't matter what countless Knesset members, ministers in the Israeli government, military personnel, uh, TV personalities, news personalities have said, which are genocidal comments, genocidal statements for months. 
They also say, ignore that. So it's funny because they're, they're asking you to ignore what you're seeing. They're asking you to ignore what you're hearing and just trust them for some reason. And rather than trusting your own ability to deduce information from that, that you're seeing. And that's why there's a, you know, that's why I said, I'm like, I'm not saying he wasn't in distress. I'm certainly you are in distress when you take that extreme form of action. But what we're not talking about is the cause of the distress. What caused his distress? His distress is from a society that is so unjust in which he was trying to serve in the best way he knew how that continues in his name, with his uniform, with his tax dollars, with his weapons, as an American, continues to carry out and support atrocities across the world. That's why he was in distress. He told us why he was in distress, but that's not what anybody wants to talk about. Well, not anybody. That's not what anyone who has avoided talking about the reality of the atrocities in Gaza, they still don't, to avoid talking about that, this is something that would bring attention to it. So what do you have to do? Divert attention from Aaron's actual actions and why he took those actions. Here's another interesting turn of position. Let's see, we have Adam Kinziger, the congressman, the member of Congress, Republican, Slava Ukraini is his handle. He writes, suicide is not heroic in response to, obviously, to what Aaron Bushnell did. And as Esha Legal points out, Kirsha Swami, who we've had on, she points out, she says, do tell. And she shows a tweet from the same congressman that says a salute. And then it has two Ukrainian flags and two American flags. Hero Ukrainian soldier blew himself up to destroy bridge and stop Russian invasion forces storming in from Crimea. I thought suicide was not heroic. So that's one of the, I think the easiest ways to um, figure out who you're dealing with is to look at their, are they consistent or are they inconsistent, right? Is there a consistency in, in the policies that they want to impose? And so it's, it's interesting to me that you see people who talk about Russia occupying Ukraine, which I would agree with, Russia invading Ukraine, which I would agree, which as a violation of international law which I agree with. Um, any type of war crime that's being committed anywhere. The, all of those things should be treated equally. The problem is we don't, right? We do not treat, and by we, I mean the United States, especially, and why I focus on the United States, one, because I'm an American, two, because it's the most powerful country in the world. The reason why everything that is happening in Gaza can continue to happen is the United States, period. And the idea that we are not directly doing anything is. Uh, is misleading because they're our weapons, it's our money, it's our vetoes, it's our uh, diplomatic immunity, it's us not doing anything to hold Israel accountable. Um, and very openly, politicians always talk about unconditional, you know, unconditional aid, unconditional support, as if this is a normal thing to say, as if anything being unconditional is not a fanatic point of view. No. That's not a normal position to take. Everything should be conditional. What is happening right now should condition what you're doing. Talk about pathology. Right, but we don't talk about that. So we don't talk about, that's what I mean when I say the frustration of the way that people talk about Aaron Bushnell, the idea that he was in distress, the idea that this was a horrific thing that happened. I don't disagree with any of those points, but we're not talking about why. And that's the problem. It's not because his people grew up in a religious compound. Like that's not, the reason for what has happened. 
This is uh, Obama responding to a Tunisian vendor who self-immolated. November 17th, a young vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi was devastated when a police officer confiscated his cart. This was not unique. It's the same kind of humiliation that takes place every day in many parts of the world. The relentless tyranny of governments that deny their citizens dignity. Only this time, something different happened. After local officials refused to hear his complaints, this young man, who had never been particularly active in politics, went to the headquarters of the provincial government, doused himself in fuel, and lit himself on fire. There are times in the course of history when the actions of ordinary citizens spark movements for change because they speak to a longing for freedom that has been building up for years. In America, think of the defiance of those patriots in Boston who refused to pay taxes to a king, or the dignity of Rosa Parks as she sat courageously in her seat. So it was in Tunisia, as that vendor's act of desperation tapped into the frustration felt throughout the country. I wonder if Obama would compare Aaron Bushnell to the founding fathers. Well, I wonder if Obama will say anything about what is going on currently, which I have not seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the, the hypocrisy and the double standard. And that's what I mean when I say, look, if be consistent in what you're saying, and that's what I'm expecting, if anything, that's what I'm expecting the media to do. Why? We, so in the US, we talk about authoritarian states and what's one of the pillars of an authoritarian state, state-run media. Talk about that all the time, right? Russian state-run media, Iranian state-run media, Chinese state-run media. What does that mean to be state-run media? It means there's no free press, right? We're, we champion this idea in Western liberal democracies. We have this thing called the free press. How is it a free press if all it does is mimic and parrot what the official state line is, which is precisely what our media has been doing, and it's not the first time. Um, the lead-up to the war in Iraq in 2003 was very much facilitated by the media narrative that did not challenge what the state was saying, what officials were saying. And we know that to be a complete lie. In fact, uh, the example of Iraq is, is particularly, I don't know, sick, I guess is the only word I can use. There's a, I forgot what it's called, but you know, every year, usually the president has a sort of banquet, a black tie banquet. Yeah, with the um, press. The press, yes. You know what I'm talking about. So one year after the invasion of Iraq, uh, George Bush at the time in 2004 has one of these events. And now the press that helped create the invasion is sitting there, right? All the members of the press are there. And he has pictures on the screen that he's joking, you know, traditionally they make jokes about this. And he has pictures where he's sort of looking around things in, in the White House. And what he's mocking is maybe the WMDs are here. Maybe there's weapons of mass destruction under the desk. And you have a room full of press just laughing about this, laughing about openly discussing war crimes, right? You have invaded a country, committed war crimes under false pretenses, and now this is a laughable joke. And this is in the middle of the entire press being there. So this is not new. There's precedent to this. And there's concern, we should be concerned, that our free press is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is challenging what the state says. That's supposed to be the difference between a free press and that in an authoritarian state. 
Well, it's interesting you bring that up because at the same press dinner that happens, when Obama was president, he joked about droning the Jonas Brothers. Oh, yes. The the the, the drones that had killed uh, countless innocent people, also a joke. No, I remember that one too. And this is what I'm saying is like this, all of this language and within our political and media discourse, what it does is it dehumanizes peoples across the world. And in doing so, it allows, it makes it easier or more palatable to the general public to carry out atrocities against them. What has happened in the last four and a half months is it's become impossible to dehumanize Palestinians for people who are on social media, for people who are seeing them themselves. You can do it when all you're consuming, when your entire media diet is watching MSNBC and CNN, yes, Palestinians continue to be dehumanized. But if you are on social media, if you are seeing journalists in Gaza posting these stories, telling you what is happening and you're seeing it with your own eyes, it becomes much, much more difficult to deny. And that's why in part you're seeing a shift in the discourse, even within the United States, which has traditionally been within the American public, a staunch supporter of Israel. But you're seeing not only a generational divide, but divides within specific communities as well, because they're seeing these things. They're seeing horror after horror and they cannot turn away and they cannot find a way. How can you justify killing 13,000 children? How do you justify starving them? How do you justify decomposed babies in a hospital? How do you justify a story like Hin Rajab, a six-year-old child who was left trapped in a car only to have the ambulance that was supposed to come save her killed as well as herself and her entire family? You cannot justify these things. And so that's why the narrative is shifting, but millions of people in this country still consume that mainstream media. And if they are not seeing anything else, then you see why the intentional framing of the conflict in a certain way is so important and why it's done that way in order for people to think a certain way for their opinions to be shaped by them. I want to show you guys that it is possible to do a responsible headline. Here we found one. U.S. Air Force member self-immolates in protest for Palestine-Israeli embassy. I will no longer be complicit in genocide. The Air Force member identified himself as Aaron Bushnell. Ben Spielberg, who we've had on the show, tweeted that out. And it is from, not the New York Times, not the Guardian, but Marca, a Spanish sports newspaper. So that's where you have to go to if you want to get a good, uh, if you want to get a good coverage on this. But um, can you tell us, you know, I have to admit, this story about him that you just mentioned, I have not let myself listen to her recordings. I have. And I feel like you should tell people what happened. I know the basics of it, but can you just tell people what happened? Because this story is so horrific that I haven't brought it up on the show. I haven't listened to the recordings. Can you tell people what this, what, what happened to Hind? So Hind, uh, Hind Rajab is six-year-old Palestinian girl, um, who with her uncle and cousins, uh, get into a vehicle and try to go to a safe place, which doesn't exist in Gaza, but they try to get out of where there was fighting and their car um, is shot up by an Israeli tank and members of the family die in the car. Now her 15-year-old cousin calls, uh, calls I believe it's the Red Crescent, but they call basically like uh, rescue services and in the first recording, when you hear her 15-year-old cousin, uh, you can, and there's subtitles to translate the Arabic, but 
basically she's they're calling for help and then you hear fire you hear firing and then the call cuts off and then later you hear recordings of hind now six-year-old hind whose entire family has been killed in the car she's by herself in the car trapped and and she's calling for help and i i invite everybody to listen to it because it's horrifying it is horrifying to listen to a six-year-old child uh, surrounded by her dead family, calling for help, asking the dispatch. Not only is it horrifying to listen to her, it's horrifying to listen to the dispatcher who doesn't know what to do, who who starts uh, praying with her, essentially, who just keeps telling her, I- I'm not going to I'm not gonna hang up. I'm not going to leave because Hind is telling her, I'm afraid of the dark. I'm Please, please, someone come help me. And they send, obviously, they send an ambulance to go out and to help her. And what essentially happens is days later, the the ambulance is finally found. The ambulance has been blown up. The ambul- people in the ambulance have been killed. Hind is found killed as well, along with her entire family. And the way that this story in particular was, was portrayed in Western media was so awful. They couldn't even bring themselves to use the word killed to describe what had happened to her. In some cases, her name wasn't used. In other cases, nothing. Just six-year-old girl found dead. Found dead as if she had dropped dead of her own accord, as if it was a natural cause of death, as if she was not killed by Israeli forces, as well as her family, as well as the ambulance that went to save her. And you can hear her, her very slender, childlike voice. Even if you don't understand Arabic, you don't have to. You can hear her voice. You can hear the distress, the fear, and the attempt at the, of this dispatcher, who's who themselves you can tell is getting very emotional and trying to and trying to stay with this child to keep her calm. That story is that story is horrifying, and to reduce it to uh, you know the telling of it by whether it was BBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all of them failed her, failed to tell the story. This is a child, but that's the extent to which Palestinians have been dehumanized. That's the extent to which the media is facilitating that dehumanization because they will not tell these human stories. That to me is the quintessential story of the tragedy of what is happening in Gaza. And the fact that a story that so many people knew, I mean, there's so thousands of children have been killed. We don't know all of their stories. We don't know all of their names, but this one we knew. And even in that attempt, they couldn't, they couldn't bring themselves to humanize this child. Yeah, that's a story. I read about it, but I couldn't bring myself to listen to it because I, there's no really words. But the fact that there's absolutely no excuse for that story to not have been told in a way that made clear that Israel killed her. Like, as you pointed out, it sounds like she expired, like on her own or something, or is in a car accident, or like died because of exposure or neglect. Yeah, if you don't look, listen, if we not everybody is following this as closely as those who are either professionally, you know, interested in this or experts in this field or activists, not everybody is following it as closely. So again, how does the public understand an issue? They understand it by seeing these things. Oftentimes people see a headline, they don't really read the body of the the story, right? This is also just the truth. You you read the ticker, you don't pay attention to the details of everything that's going on. And when the stories are framed this way, if they don't have the context, how would you know? You're absolutely right. It sounds like it's a car accident. Um, there was a headline in the 
New York Times recently that said, I'm paraphrasing it, but it was something to the effect of um, strikes in uh, Rafah, a large mosque flattened. And that was it, right? If you, if you don't, what if you don't know where Rafah even is? Like, wh- why do we assume everybody knows what that is? You didn't use the word Gaza. You didn't use the word Palestinian. Uh, you didn't use the word Israel to describe what, what, what strikes, what strikes, lightning strikes, airstrikes. Like, it's so watered down the way that the language is. And it's intentional. Again, it's done intentionally so. Because if that wasn't the case, then every single day you would see headlines. Every single day you would see headlines that said, Israel killed and then fill in the blank. X amount of women, X amount of children, this particular child, this is the story. That would overwhelm people. And then more people would be privy to that knowledge. And there would be more pressure on our officials to actually act to prevent what is happening, which they absolutely have the power to do. And not only have they not prevented anything, they've used that power. They've wielded that power to facilitate the death of those children. Brad just showed a couple of the examples of your tweets. Let's see. Here we have complex sentences that avoid saying Israel's responsible for killing Palestinians equals award-winning coverage. And you have a uh, screenshot. The New York Times wins three Polk Awards. The New York Times was honored for its coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. Okay. And then you have another screenshot. It says explosion. Gazans say was airstrike leaves many casualties in dense neighborhood. And then you underline by who, right? And uh, you also uh, underline it, the word lifeless because then it says dozens were taken to nearby Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital where a photographer for the New York Times saw the injured crowding the hallways and the lifeless being prepared for burial. The lifeless, that's an interesting euphemism. Uh, here's another uh, headline you marked up. It says Gazans who sought shelter in Rafa are fleeing again and that couldn't be redeemed. As you said, this one just couldn't be saved. So you just crossed that out and wrote no place is safe in Gaza as Israel bombs and attacks anywhere Palestinians go. Here's another one. So you have an AP headline that says Netanyahu seeks open-ended control over security and civilian affairs in Gaza in new post-war plan. That's from February 24th. And you write Netanyahu seeks military occupation in Gaza in new post-war plan. and. that's true, of course. You also have one that, uh, a very good uh, tweet that you highlight, in which you highlight the difference between, as you referred to earlier, the way Palestinians are presented and Ukrainians are presented. The difference in media framing is intentionally right. And, it, and one, the first uh, screenshot says, Russia pounds Ukrainian cities in one of the largest air attacks of the war. And as you point out, attacker is named Russia pounds Ukrainian cities in one of the largest air attacks of the war. And you underline pounds and attacks. The missile and drone attacks killed at least 30 people and damaged critical industrial and military infrastructure, part of a wintertime campaign that Ukraine had been dreading. Also, there's empathy, right? From like you empathize with the Ukrainians and they're dreading. Now let's compare that. Explosion Gaza doesn't say was airstrike leaves many casualties in dense neighborhood. Explosion by whom? The casualties and lifeless. Yeah, I mean the when you when you put them next to each other, and you could do this repeatedly, um, because again, it's by design. This is not, and that's why I said at the very beginning, if you took the way that Aaron Bushnell's um 
self-immolation and protest was depicted and framed in the media, and this was just one incident that they sort of depicted that way, then maybe you could make the argument, well, that wasn't intentionally done that way. But this has been the consistent case throughout. And if you if you can continuously see the difference, right? Um, Ukrainians, again, rightfully so, um, are people sympathize with Ukrainians, there's sympathy within the the language that is used to describe them. Um, there is the idea, the very simple idea that Ukrainians have the right to self-defense, right? Ukrainians have the right to defend themselves. No one will say that about Palestinians. No, not only will they not say that about Palestinians, the 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 political discourse is repeatedly that Israel has the right to defend itself while Israel is carrying out mass atrocities. That's not self-defense, right? And they're the occupying power. Actually, Palestinians have the right, legally speaking, to self-defense. Israel doesn't have the right to attack the people it's occupying. But no one ever will ever bring that up. You have another, two other ones I wanted to point out, two other really good tweets. Something that the media has been almost entirely ignoring is the ICJ. But here, a reminder that this vote came after the ICJ ruling. The U.S. just vetoed a resolution to stop a genocide. And it says, CNN Politics, U.S. vetoes U.N. resolution calling for immediate ceasefire in Gaza after proposing a temporary halt in fighting. That's what they write. And you corrected to say U.S. again vetoes U.N. resolution calling for immediate ceasefire in Gaza after proposing a temporary halt in plausible genocide. And then another one that you have, this is a very important point, though. Biden could have stopped this month ago, and it's an AP headline. Israeli strikes hit Rafa after Biden warns Netanyahu who to have credible plan to protect civilians. And you rewrite that too. Israeli strikes hit Rafa after Biden does nothing to protect civilians. The Biden administration acts like they have no power. I mean, I think it was yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, this the state, state spokesperson, uh, Matthew Miller, in one of the briefings, um, was basically asked about you know the leverage that the U.S. has uh, to use over Israel in order for in order essentially for Israel to do what the U.S. is asking, right? Well, Netanyahu is rejecting the idea of a Palestinian state outright. Well, that's the that's the policy position of the Biden administration. We have this clip actually, if you want to set it up, it's the one with Matthew Miller and Matt Lee. Well, uh, Matt Lee then has a sort of nice little remark in the middle of it. But he basically, you can play it and then we can talk about it. Okay. Work with them on how to achieve that vision. But you have so many, you have so many tools. Just yep. the last one, yeah. sorry. But you have so much leverage over the Israelis. And this is fundamental vision of the president. So you can use all the leverage you want, you want including weapons that you sell to Israel. To so make sure that this plan is on the, at least on the right path for implementation, considering we have like short time between now and November. So one thing I will say about that, that people often tend to forget is that Israel, like other countries in the region, is a sovereign country that makes its own decisions. The United States does not dictate to Israel what it must do, just as we don't dictate to any country what it must do. We present what we believe Unless are the, we present what the, we believe Unless you the, invade them. <laughs> Good one, Matt. We, we present, no, I mean, come, but, but come on, yeah. It's, we, we present. It's funny because it's true. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the first thing I heard when he goes, we don't tell them what to do. I'm like, yeah, you just regime change them, invade them. Sanction. I mean, the- you could tell them what to, right. Yeah, sank, right. Compare the response to Russia versus Israel, right? We have so many coercive measures and tools at our disposal that we very, very easily use against adversarial states. In fact, we use coercive measures and punitive measures so much that we don't even care how it affects civilians in those populations, right? We'll just carpet bomb a country, we'll sanction people into starvation. So so not only do we use punitive measures um, and in order to tell states that they have to comply with what we say, not international law. Let's keep that in mind. We don't even do it when it's international law. What, what's being said right now is why, why won't the U.S. take action to hold Israel accountable to international law? The U.S. will ignore international law and say that states have to be accountable to the U.S. What do I mean by that? Here's an example. The U.S. will go to the Persian Gulf across the world, seize a tanker with Iranian oil that is supposed allegedly headed to China. Two sovereign states, right? He just talked about sovereign countries. Iran is a sovereign country. China is a sovereign country. Iranian oil belongs to Iran. We'll seize that ship, take the Iranian oil, sell the oil, and say, well, we're, in, we're you know, enforcing sanctions, which is U.S. law. It's unilateral U.S. law. But when we are told that, well, why don't we use some of the tools at our disposal to hold Israel accountable under international law? Israel is a sovereign state. Doesn't that mean that every sovereign state then can violate international law? If you're saying that Israel never has to give the land that does not belong to it to Palestinians, that's a decision that a sovereign state can make, then you just said, then essentially what you're saying is Israel can annex that land. And if that's the case, can't Russia do the same in Ukraine? Because that's the argument that they will make. And the problem is those arguments are coming from the United States. We are saying things that are utterly absurd. And I'm not even talking about punitive measures, right? Let's assume that that's too much to ask, that we actually use punitive measures against Israel. What if we just don't provide it with weapons, which is what that reporter was saying? What if we just don't veto resolutions? What if we just don't give it military? What if we condition military aid? What if we support the ICJ, the actual international institutions that we claim to, to respect and champion? So it's, it's like an exercise in absurdity to listen to, these, to listen to these briefings. It's an insult to people's intelligence for someone to say, for someone to actually stand there and say, you know, we don't tell anybody what to do. We tell everybody what to do all the time. It's like the number one thing we do is telling countries what to do. And all of a sudden, we have no ability We have no ability to do that Um, when, in fact, we have the most leverage over our allies, the most leverage over our friends. We have the least leverage over our adversaries because we've already cut so many ties. So they're not dependent on us at all. Right. Like the idea that we compare it to, say, like a state like Iran. We're not sending military aid to Iran. We're not selling weapons to Iran. It's nothing to be cut off. We don't have that much leverage. We have a ton of leverage over Israel. That's not even punitive. But we won't do the bare minimum, the bare minimum to stop what is happening. And we know what is happening because this has been said by every institution. Every international institution has called for a ceasefire. The only reason there is at least no call for a ceasefire is because the United States will not support it. It's so awful. I mean, just going back to the story of Hind, it's like these are stories that you learn when you're learning about never again. These are tragic stories that are supposed to inform the way we move forward from that period. 
Absolutely. And I'll tell you that I grew up in the U.S. I was born in the U.S. and grew up here. I think anybody who grew up in the U.S. knows that in our education, World War II and the Holocaust play a central role. And I mean, it's not something you learn once. It's something you learn over and over and over again. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.